Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 25. This is our freedom teaching series for Freedom Christ to Set Us Free as a subtitle. And uh, this uh, weekend's message is Gospel Character Part 1. Let me start off by asking you this question. Could there be more to the Christian life than what you are currently living? Yeah, okay. If you're like me, you'd say absolutely. Absolutely. Are you settling for too little? And the reason why I ask those two questions is uh, if it's true that the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8, 11, if that's true, I believe it's true, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, if that is true, this would give us, that would give you incredible and incomparable resources for life change. And uh, there's no better passage in the Bible to teach us how to experience deep and permanent life change than the one we're going to be looking at. And we're going to spend two weeks on this, and we're going to focus more on the works of the flesh this week. Next week, we'll focus more on the fruit of the Spirit, but this is really an important text, so I thought we would kind of camp out here for two weeks. To be a Christian means you have resources for change that are unequaled, unparalleled, unsurpassed. And we need to be able to see that and see how that life change happens in our lives. Take a look at your sermon notes, part of that intro. In the first half of chapter 5, that's where we are, of Galatians, we learn that Christian freedom gives us a whole new motivation for living, for Christ to set us free, for freedom Christ to set us free. That's the, the, the sub-theme. It's actually the theme of this whole series. And, and so in the first half we learned that Christian freedom gives us a whole new motivation for living. In normal religion, the motivation for morality is fear and or pride. It's a morally restrained will. But in gospel Christianity, the motivation is a heart captivated by Christ's love. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 6 and 14. There's a major difference between a morally restrained will versus a supernaturally transformed heart. And you hear me talk about that a lot here. In this passage, we're going to learn how to grow in character through this new, dy dy new dynamic, I can't say it, new dynamic of love. And uh, before we do that, before we take a look at this text, unpack these notes, we're going to pray. And what I'd like for us to do is just join together and pray for Paris, France. I think that would be a, a good way to start, and then we'll uh, talk to God about this study and how it will impact our lives. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the fact that in uh, James 4, 2, it says we have not because we ask not, and in 5, 16, it says that the prayers of a righteous person or people are powerful and effective, and so God, we, we pray, first of all, for Paris, France, the country, France, we pray that you would give wisdom and strength to those first responders, the police, the military that you as the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort would be with the victims and their families. We pray that justice would be served. We pray that any further terrorist attacks would be stopped and that, and that we here in our country would be more vigilant against terrorism, not just in our country but, uh, but throughout the world. And God, we pray most that the church would rise up 
and be a light in this dark world, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. And God, as it relates to this study here this morning, we pray that you would meet us right here as we encounter you through the study of your word. No one can meet you and remain the same. And it doesn't make sense that you, the creator of the universe, would have children characterized by inordinate anxiety, anger, or depression. And yet we confess too often sin kidnaps the desires of our hearts, blinds our eyes, weakens us spiritually. And so we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened that we may know the immeasurable greatness of your resurrection power toward us who believe, transforming our hearts, healing our wounded souls, filling our lives with the fruit of the Holy Spirit for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Take a look at this text. I'm gonna read straight through it. There's so much here. I'd love to comment after each of these phrases and these verses, but I don't have time to. And I'm just going to walk through it, and then we'll unpack these notes. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So he's making this contrast between living a life according to the Spirit and the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Boy, that's, that's really insightful, isn't it? There's a lot of things you want to do, but you find yourself not doing. And he's saying, this is telling you why you don't do the things that you want to do oftentimes, because there's a war going on within our own hearts and our lives. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, the works of the flesh. Now, he's going to tell us what that looks like as we, as we follow more of the, the ways of the flesh versus the Spirit. And he says, now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So it's not a, an, an all-inclusive list. He's just saying anything along these lines. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty heavy warning. But then he contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. So what he's saying is if you're following the Spirit, if you're being led by the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, this is what should be abounding in your life. That's why I started by asking you, could there be more to the Christian life than what you're currently living? This is what we can be living. This is the list. This is what our life should look like. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Isn't that interesting? Why would he say that? It's because the law deals with more of our behaviors. The Spirit deals with our heart, transforms our heart. There's a difference between, as I said, a morally restrained will, kind of deals with the externals, versus a supernaturally transformed heart. That's what he's talking about here. And then he goes on... Uh, and he says, and those who belong to Christ, that's key. So when you understand what we have in Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And I was tempted to say something about everything, and I, I held off, and I did comment a little bit, but okay. Let's look at the notes here, because that'll help us to understand this text. And so if you can see right off the bat, Spiritual growth is a battle. If you want to grow, you got a battle. Let me give you some, uh, this kind of, let's talk about the origin of this battle. Where did it begin? What is the flesh? What is the spirit? Who is the spirit? And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that battle. And then we'll dive a little bit deeper into this and we'll look at the nature of this battle. We're going to go even deeper into our heart to find out what is going on within this battle. So first of all, Spiritual growth is a battle. Number one, our flesh, sinful nature, some translations say, was there ruling alone and unopposed before we were Christians. We are sinners by nature and by choice. The Bible is very clear about that. I gave you some verses to show you that. You can look those up on your own as you work through the growing news this next week. So what is this flesh when it talks about the flesh? This is the best definition I could come up with is that the flesh is an empty ego trying to fill itself up on anything and everything other than God. That's what the flesh is. Now, why, do, why would we have this empty ego? It's because, and you've heard me say this many times before, you and I were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, look into the face of our creator, and to, and to have him give us all the worth and the value that we would ever need. Imagine that. Imagine looking into his eyes and, and having your heart and having this emotional wealth just overflowing in your life, this love, all the love and the joy and the peace that you could ever, ever desire to have. And yet what happened? Well, read uh, Genesis 3. It's the same thing that happens uh, in our lives is that we, in unbelief, we doubt his love and in pride we think we're smarter than him and then immediately idolatry takes place in our life. We begin to exchange him for something else in creation. And, and what that tells us, and we know this based on what the scripture teaches, and this is also just by looking at your life, you can see that your life was meant to have God at the center of your life. And when he's not at the center of your life, you'll have another God. It's a pseudo-God. It's a pseudo-savior. It's a counterfeit God. There's something at the center of your life. And if it's not the eternal God, the creator of the universe, something else is at the center of your life. And, and that, that's walking, you know, that's, uh, that's being led by the flesh or living your life according to the flesh. And, uh, and what happens in all of that, that it, it just shows us in our flesh, we are too easily convinced that God is not capable of satisfying our deepest longing. And we're too easily seduced into thinking that some created beauty can. There's a couple other verses I want you to put down here. Um, one is Romans 125 that helps us to understand a little bit more of this battle and what we do when we're walking in the flesh or living according to the flesh. Romans 125 says we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. That's what it means to to walk in the flesh. So, so it's, a, it's an empty ego trying to find uh, and trying to fill itself up on anything other than, than God. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving created things more, more than the creator. Here's another verse for you also. We talked about that, uh, I think it was last weekend. Jeremiah 2.13, here's another way that we could define this idea of the flesh. The flesh is, it is, a, it is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, which is Christ, 
for broken cisterns that, that have water for a season but then run out. Broken cistern, Old Testament word for just a broken well. And so that's what it means to follow the ways of the flesh. Now, here's the next point on your notes. The Spirit entered our lives supernaturally when we first became Christians and has begun a work of whole life transformation. So you kind of see that in John 14, 16 through 17, John 16, 7 through 15, 1 Corinthians 3, 13. So the Holy Spirit's job is to convince us that the most desirable and soul-satisfying reality in the world is God. Everybody look up here. This is what I try to do week in and week out. I don't always do a good job, and I have to work on my own heart, too, because I struggle with this, too. But there is uh, that God is more dazzling, more magnificent, more wonder-inducing than anything that you have ever, ever experienced. He is our most satisfying reality. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's what should happen week in and week out when we gather together. This isn't really so much about how-to and self-help. It's more about encountering the living God and finding our deepest delight in Him. And uh, I have to work hard to try to convince you of that. I have to work hard, and the Holy Spirit has to work hard in my own heart to do that. And the next point on your notes, the battle is between desires of the Spirit and the flesh. So the battle is between desires of the spirit and the flesh. At any point in our life, we will live by one and not gratify the other. So it says in verse 16, walk by the spirit. So it's a command. And then it gives us a promise, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh if you're truly walking by the spirit. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ, I think that's a key. So I I think that oftentimes we do not We do not realize what we have in Christ, the resources that we have in Christ. So he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. And so uh, we we are so easily taken out by, by, uh, and overwhelmed by trials, and it's because we don't know who is for us and not against us. Why do we get so stressed out? Why do we become so anxious? Why do we worry so much? Why do we get so angry? Why are we so depressed? It's because we've forgotten who is for us and not against us. See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit to remind us. And of course, the the work of God's word is we, we meditate on his word as the Holy Spirit makes Christ more real to us. That's what we need. Why are we overcome by temptation? It's because we're convinced that we're gonna be happier by pursuing whatever it is that we're pursuing as opposed to pursuing him. And we've just lost track of, of who Christ is, that we belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, Romans chapter 7 helps us. If you've ever read through Romans 7, and Paul talks about this struggle. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wicked man. He just says, I'm struggling. And we've all struggled. And we all still struggle. Uh, Ephesians 4, through 24, he refers to this as the old self and the new self, or the old man and the new man. So a Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those bad desires by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what he wants us to really understand and learn. And so the sign of whether you are indwelt 
by the Spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. And if there is not a war going on within you, then you're either not a Christian or you're losing the battle and uh, you're not growing spiritually. I had to be able to come to you and say, what's the war? What, what's the, where's the war front currently? What's going on in your life? And of course, all I would have to do is say, where, what makes you most anxious? What makes you most sad? What makes you most happy? I can tell you right where the war front is, what's going on in your life. What's God doing in your life? What's, what is it that's competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ? You got to know that. You need to know that. Otherwise, you're not going to be winning that war. You're not going to find Christ to be more desirable, more satisfying than anything. You're going to cave into all the issues of, of life. Now, let's take a look at the nature of this battle. That's just a, kind of a kind of talking about the origins of this battle, where it began. But let's, let's dive a little deeper into this. Now, what I'm about to share with you has been revolutionary for my life. I mean, it has brought so much more freedom to my life in understanding this and knowing where the, where the battle is, where the battlefront is, and being, being able to battle that and deal with those things in my own life. And here's number one, under the nature of this battle, the biggest problem with our flesh is not that we desire bad things, but over-desire good things that become our self-righteousness. So the key phrase here is over-desire. Over-desire good things. Verses 16 and 24 of our text, the words desire, that word desires, is the Greek word epithumia. And it means an over-desire, an inordinate desire, in all-controlling drive and longing. Now, the Old Testament talks a lot about idolatry. This is the New, Te New Testament idolatry. It's a, it's a desire. It's an, it's an over-desire. It's how the, how the New Testament deals with it. I gave you a number of verses there. Ephesians 2, 3, 4, 22, 1 Peter 2, 11, 1 Peter 4, 2, 1 John 2, 16, James 1, 14. It's all talking about that over-desire. <clears throat> Sin creates in us the feeling that there are people, things, and circumstances, something in creation, often good things, that we can't live without, and, we be, and what they do is they become counterfeit gods, pseudo-saviors, or over-desires through which we seek our salvation, our righteousness, our, our success, our well-being, our, our worth and value in life from so there are things in our lives, in creation, apart from the creator, that we try to seek our worth and value from. What, what, remember what I said? We were meant to look into the eyes of God and get all the worth and value we would need, but when we turned away from him, that created this, this uh, spiritual alienation from God, which immediately creates a psychological alienation. We become empty. We have an empty ego, and we try to fill it up. We've been talking about it the last couple of weeks. Last week we talked about we try to fill it up in with, uh, with legalism, trying to earn our right standing with God, and we try to fill it up with license. So we do it with religion and irreligion. Religion is moral conformity. I'll be a good person. Irreligion is self-discovery. I'll find my happiness away from God out there in a job, relationship, money, whatever it might be. That's that broken cistern. It's that suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water Christ for broken cisterns. And so we all, 
all tend to do that. That's what he's talking about here. And it's based on this over, over desire. The word righteous, when I use that self-righteousness, and the Bible uses the word righteous a lot, the word righteous in the Bible tends to mean acceptable. So the question is, is it what, makes, what makes you feel acceptable? What makes you feel good about yourself? If I were to ask you that, we're sit down and talk, and, and if I were to kind of watch you in your life, there are certain things that make you really happy, there's things that make you sad, there's things that make you angry, and those would all be tied to something in your life that you are building your sense of righteousness, your, your acceptability. You're feeling good about yourself. And you gotta be able to identify that. What makes you feel acceptable? Every one of us has standards, things we feel like, if I get that, if I achieve that, then I will be acceptable. And they become over-desires. They're not so much bad things, but they're just good things that become too important to us. They begin to take the place of God. And they create all kinds of problems in our lives. And so those those over-desires for good things that become our self-righteousness, our acceptability, compete for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ and our righteousness or acceptability in Him. Let me uh, share with you a story here. This is actually from um, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, The Problem with Sin. He says this, as a pastor at my first church in Hopewell, Virginia, I found myself counseling two different women both of whom were married, both of whom had husbands who were poor fathers, and both of whom had teenage sons who were beginning to get into trouble in school and with the law. Both of the women were angry at their husbands. And that would be justifiable. They're upset. They're wanting their husband to step up and to take a more lead role. I advised them and talked among other things, about the problems of unresolved bitterness and the importance of forgiveness. Both women agreed and sought to forgive. However, the woman who had the worst husband and who was the least religious, he means that in a good way, who was the, not as close to God as the other woman. However, the woman who had the worst husband and who was the least religious was able to forgive the other woman was not, and this puzzled me for months until one day the unforgiving woman blurted out, well, if my son goes down the drain, then my whole life will have been a failure. Bingo. I mean, what's, what's that? What does that tell you? She had centered her life on her son's happiness and success. That was why she couldn't forgive. Isn't that interesting? Over-desires or, or idols, things we build our sense of identity on or our well-being on, are the basis for most of our bad feelings and all of our bad behavior, works of the flesh. So let's just put that away just for a moment and we'll, we'll come back to it. Second point. So the Holy Spirit desires for us to see, savor, and show the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he has done to give us a perfect righteousness. So you got this war, so we're kind of diving deeper into our heart to see what exactly is going on with this war. So we're warring against these over-desires, these counterfeit gods, pseudo-saviors. And so it's the Holy Spirit's job to help us to see, savor, 
and show the beauty and glory of who Christ is and what he has done for us to give us this perfect righteousness. Did you notice verse 17? The desires of the Spirit. Some translations don't actually say, don't refer to it as the desires of the Spirit. It just says the Spirit is against the desires of the flesh. But the Spirit does have these desires, and it's not, they're not, and the reason why you have to be careful with it, it's not over-desires, they're not over-desires, because the the Holy Spirit would, you know, I think it's important that we have our greatest loyalty and affection towards God, but there's this, there's this competing, there's this war that's going on. John 16, 14 says that it's the Holy Spirit's job to, to bring glory to Christ that he would become so dazzling, so uh, magnificent to us that our hearts would be drawn to him. Um, Ephesians 5.18 talks about being filled with the Spirit. And I think this is what he's talking about here when he says walk in the Spirit or be led by the Spirit. He's actually talking about the Spirit-filled life. Let me give you a quick definition of what the Spirit-filled life is. Um, Spirit-filled life is a fascinating life and he, he, he compares it to being drunk. Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, a life out of control, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's fascinating. And, and I believe he does that purposely because I think that being drunk and being filled, Spirit-filled are, are both alike and unalike. And they are alike in that being drunk and being filled with the Spirit makes you happy and courageous, okay? I think that they both make you happy and courageous. But they're unalike in how they do that. Being drunk makes you happy and courageous because it decreases your sense of reality. To where the Holy Spirit makes you happy and courageous because it does what? It increases your sense of reality. Christ becomes more real to you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, listen to me, we are overwhelmed, we get stressed out, we worry. I mean, we just get worn out because we don't know who's for us and not against us. We need, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to see how magnificent, how glorious, how beautiful Jesus is. You're not alone. He's for you, not against you. If he did not spare his own son but gave him up freely for you, how much more will he... Give us all things. Take care of us. If he took care of our worst problem, oh my goodness, he'll take care of all of your other problems. That's the truth. That's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But see, we kind of live, we live like, like kids that it, it's almost as if people looked at our lives that we wouldn't look like that we're children of the eternal creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Oftentimes our behavior and even our attitudes will exempl- would exemplify something totally different. I mean, that's why I asked the question, could there be more to the Christian life than what you're currently living? Yes, always. I don't live in the reality of the fact that he's my dad. He's looking after me. He loves me. He's going to take care of me. And the reason I know that is because I see too many of the works of the flesh in my life. I get too stressed out and too angry and too upset and, and, and act out in a lot of crazy ways. Now, now, this idea of walking in the Spirit is what we do when the desires produced by the Spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. So this is where spiritual disciplines come in. If you're not, you know, if you're kind of neglectful and, and maybe coming to church or reading your Bible or praying or hanging out with other fired up Christians, 
No wonder you're going to struggle with, uh, you know, being more led by the flesh as opposed to the spirit. You need to surround yourself, you know, with these things that help to stir up within you greater appetite for Jesus. Walking in the spirit or being led by the spirit is being so happy in Jesus that sin loses its appeal. Walking in the spirit is rejoicing and resting in the promises of God to the degree that it breaks the power of sin's promise. And the sin offers a promise. That's why people sin. People sin. We all sin because we think we're going to actually be, it offers the promise of happiness. We actually think we're going to be happier. So think about this. Anytime you do anything that's contrary to God's established uh, ground rules, guardrails, the Ten Commandments, whatever God's word teaches us, it's because you're convinced you're smarter than God. You think that he's holding out on you. You think that you can find greater happiness outside of him. That's what's going on in your heart. And, uh, and the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. And that's a lie. And so that has to be exposed through God's word, the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ becomes more magnificent to us. Even some of you are sitting in here right now and you're not convinced of what I just said. And it, it really is going to require, you know, you're going to probably have to go through some pain. I hate to say it, but you're going to go through some pain. You're going to come to an end of yourself. You're going to be in the pig pen, and then you're going to come to your senses, and I hope you do. Remember one of the prodigal sons that was out in the pig pen? He finally came to his senses. He goes, what in the world am I thinking? How stupid have I been? It's because we thought something out there was more magnificent, more desirable, more attractive, more satisfying than him. And that's the lie. That's part of the flesh that's battling within our own hearts and lives. And so it's, it's, this is what this idea of the Holy Spirit working in our life, it is finding so much worth and value, acceptance in Christ's performance, what he did for us, that you don't need to try to find it in your performance, in your achievements, accomplishments, in, in acquisitions, or whatever it is that you think will, will satisfy you. Here's the third, number three. Anything that becomes more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive and, and desirable to your heart, attractive and desirable to your heart than Christ is an over-desire that will inevitably produce the works of the flesh. Now let me walk you through this. Notice the contrast in this text, verse 16. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's really talking actions there of the flesh. And then he says in verse 18, be led by the Spirit. I think walk by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit are one and the same thing. But he uses another phrase here. He says, are not under the law. Huh? Well, he's actually getting to not just the actions, but he's dealing with the motives of why we would walk in the Spirit. And, and what does it mean to be under the law? It has to do with your performance. It's, it's thinking that somehow you can, you can find happiness apart from God. That's what that, either by legalism or license, either by religion or irreligion, either by moral conformity or self-discovery. So being under the law, it's, it's, it's a system of identity that says, if I have this I'm a worthwhile person, or it's a system of self-salvation that says, if I do this or give that, then God will accept me and bless me. It's really, to be under the law means that I reject the free gift of Christ's righteousness and salvation and continue to seek it on my own. The sin underneath all sins is a failure to see. Look at verse 24. 
It says those who belong to Christ Jesus. It's a failure. The sin underneath all sins is a failure to see that we belong to Christ. And he says those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. And so these over-desires are the basis for most of our bad feelings and all of our bad behavior. Let me give you a quick illustration here before I move on. I try not to spend too much time on this. Let me just share with you my own struggle in my own life. And uh, it was about close to 10 years ago, we had moved from uh, 17th Avenue and Bell Road out to Sandra Day O'Connor High School. And at that time, the Board of Elders thought that it would probably be good for us to, so we were trying to raise money so we could purchase a building like we have here. And so we were trying to raise some money. And uh, the Board of Elders thought it would be best for us to purchase a home for our offices. That way, it could build some equity instead of leasing property. And so, yeah, hey, that's a great idea. So there was the home that came for sale right next to where Nancy and I live. And we live over here in Western Meadows. They're acre lots. They're irrigated. And we thought, eh, we'd probably build some really good equity over there. So why don't you guys purchase that? It'll be right next door. That'd be perfect. And it wasn't. It was a terrible idea in a lot of different ways. One was the fact that the guy that was on the other side of our home, so I lived on one side of the offices, and the guy that lived on the other side of those offices um, he was so mean and so upset and so angry and so unreasonable that he would interrogate and intimidate and bully anybody that came into the church offices. He'd just stand there because the, the driveways were, were perpendicular, they were right next to each other, and he would just try to bully everybody that came through there. And uh, he's just outrageous. And, and besides that, he began to stir up all the neighbors against me and against that church. Now, it would have been normal for me to be angry about that and then kind of process that and work through it. I wasn't just angry. I was hostile. I wanted to go down there and kick his butt. I mean, I had such rage in my heart I was so angry, it, it got a hold of me. And it was frightening of what I thought about doing to this guy. And there was a couple guys in our church at the time said, hey, Pastor Ray, we could take care of him for you if you'd like us to. <laughs> and I said, could you? No, I didn't say that. I just said, no, no, it'll be okay. And I was, yeah, I was just... I mean, I was just so, and I, and I knew that wasn't right. Because I've read too much of the scripture to understand that if you say you love me and you hate your brother or you hate anybody, you don't love me, you lie. And I go, oh. <laughs> and I remember reading too that if I'm, if I'm truly a child of God, I'll even love my enemies. That will characterize my life. Now, you could have come to me and said, now, Pastor Ray, calm down, calm down, dude. Man, I'll tell you what, you don't want to go to jail. You go down there and you hit that guy, you're going to go to jail. And I knew, I know that. <laughs> and, and you might have even said, hey, and not only that, but you don't want to be in the newspaper. Pastor beats up neighbor. <laughs> and I'm thinking, exactly. But here's the deal with that. That's fear and pride motivation. That restrains the will, but, is it, but it doesn't get to the messed up heart. Do you understand that? So I could, I could say that all day long, but I still have this anger deep in my heart. And certainly I was restrained. Thank God for that. 
I was restrained because of the fear and pride. So fear and pride can restrain the will, but it doesn't change the heart. I was so desperate. I cried out to God. I said, oh God, I, I need you to transform my heart before I go down in there and kill him. You know, I was just like, I mean, I was just like, oh, I knew it wasn't right. I mean, there were such crazy things that happened during that time. We had our board of elders meeting one night, and he got the neighbors so riled up, one of the neighbors came, into the, came up to the door, and I answered the door, and he just cussed me out, and I wanted to get into a fist fight, just kind of really, he was just up, he was upset, and I just thought, you got to, uh, one of our board of elders' vans got back window busted. So, I mean, there was a lot to this. And I was just really, as I began to work through all of this, and, and the, Lord, the Lord met with me, in my office, and man, I was so thankful for that. I was so thankful for this encounter with God that I so desperately needed, and he began to remind me, and what, what happened is that I began to recognize, as we're going to, as we end the study here, I began to see the works of the flesh in my life, and I had to begin to uncover the over-desires that were working in my life, and here was the over-desire. The over-desire, first of all, they confronted me with was this fact that he wanted me to know, and he asked me this as I was kind of interacting with God, do you think this guy can thwart my purposes for this church and for you? I had forgotten how big God is. He says, you have forgotten who's in control here. So I had a small view of God. I was trying to take things into my own hands. He also reminded me that my sense of identity was not tied to the success or failure of that church, but was based on the cross of Jesus Christ who bled and died for me to give me all the worth and value that I would ever need to face anything. And I began to go, oh my goodness. So through that, I began to preach the gospel to my heart and to my life through God's word. And the Holy Spirit lit it up on fire within my heart and gave me a love for this guy that was almost overwhelming. It just, I mean, it just, I was almost like, oh my goodness. And I actually loved this guy. And then within the year, the church moved out because we felt that was in the best interest of the neighborhood because the people were so adversarial. We were not there to, to shove it down anybody's throat. And not only that, the Lord reminded me, this very guy that you're trying to reach out, this is the people that you're trying to reach with the gospel. And, and Pastor Ray, your attitude is basically, this guy can go to hell as far as you are concerned. And that was the attitude that he confronted me with. Oh my goodness, it was overwhelming. It broke me. I realized, oh, I am desperate for you you, Jesus. I need you. And he met me there in that. And so we moved out, which was crazy about this is we sold the property and the church made $100,000 on the property. Isn't that crazy? So, so that's crazy. That doesn't always, always happen though. We would have still moved out even if we would have lost money because we were doing right. And we even knew that if we, even if we did that, God was going to take care of us because our hope and help is in him. And we were going to do that which honors him. Not only that, this guy's wife got cancer within the next year. And my wife and I went over and took him a meal. And I would have never been able to do that. And you know what's crazy about this? This guy was still despicable towards us. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Because at that moment, I experienced such freedom through the love of Christ and what he was doing in my life. It was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. Now, this is what we're going to do. This is what we need to, to kind of walk through. We're going to knock this out really quickly, the works of the flesh. And we're going to just, I'm going to talk to, uh, about them, let them land on you, wherever they might. How many of you have ever had a root canal? 
How many have ever passed a, a kidney stone? Okay, th this might be a little bit like that. If you've never done that before, it can, be, it can be a little bit painful. But now the works of the flesh are evident. If you're honest, everyone here is somewhere on this list. Now the first three words having to do with the uh, works of the flesh in the area, have to do with the works of the flesh in the area of sexuality. The first one is sexual immorality. Pornea is the Greek word. All illicit sexual activity including, but not limited to adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and prostitution. The next word is impurity. Unclean sexual motives, language, innuendos, and jokes with, with double sexual meaning. So it not only deals with our, our actions, sexual immorality, but also our motives. And then sensuality, the third word, is open and excessive indulgence in sexual sins. The person has no sense of shame or restraint, and that's the outworking of the first two. So does that sound like our culture? Yeah. Sounds like our culture. Sounds like us, too. We're right there, too. We're right there, too. Here's the next one. Um, these next two have to do with the area of religion. Idolatry is the first one. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, counterfeit gods. Sorcery, the word is pharmakia. So we get our word pharmacy there. It's somewhere in that word. Counterfeiting the works of the spirit through the use of mood and mind-altering drugs along with witchcraft and occult practices. These next eight words describe how the sinful nature destroys relationships. And the first, uh, the first four, four describe destructive attitudes. Enmity, that's what I had, hatred. Hostility, a bitter or adversarial attitude. Jealousy, the zeal and energy that comes from a hungry ego. You're willing just to push anybody out of the way, climbing the ladder. Rivalries, competitiveness, a self-seeking, and then envy, coveting, coveting a desire for what others have. And I've certainly seen that in my life with envy. If you find yourself rejoicing when others mourn and mourn when others rejoice, you've got envy. There's certain people where when you're happy, when they're sad, and, uh, and when they're happy, you're sad, I can't believe that. Well, that's, that's called envy. That's what happens in our lives. I've had that, certainly. And the next four describes the results of these attitudes and relationships. Strife, argumentative, fight-picking behavior, fits of anger, outbursts of anger, dissensions, strong disagreements and quarrels, divisions, which are permanent parties, warring factions and cliques, and then these last two refer to substance abuse, drunkenness, excessive use of wine and strong drink. And when we do that, most of that's just driven by shame. A lot of the addictions in our life are driven by shame. It's because we're not coming to God and looking into his eyes through God's word and through Jesus Christ and finding all the worth and the value we need for our lives. And so we try to cover that up through these, uh, this drunkenness. And then the last word is orgies, drunken carousing parties often filled with sexual promiscuity, spring break. Bars and nightclubs here in the valley. I mean, that's what, what it's describing. And then he says, and things like these, this is the et cetera. This list is by no means complete. Now, um, another way to break down this list 
into uh, categories is to notice that some of the sins are, are characteristic of religious people, jealousy, rivalries, envy, and strife, while others are characteristic of irreligious people, immorality, and drunkenness. But what's fascinating about this is that this list shows us that God does not make the kind of distinctions that we commonly do. Seeing sex and drink as more sinful than jealousy and strife. So we could go, oh, those sinners out there, they're getting drunk and doing all of that, and yet we can still be divisive and have rage in our heart and, and do all of these other things. And he's saying, hey, that's all in the same category. That's all works of the flesh. So when I read a, a list like this, this is a good inventory, I realize I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. But I don't stop there. I also know that I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. Jesus came to redeem me and love me, and that's why he wrote it down, so that I can identify it, and then he can bring healing to my life and heart. Now, let me read this quote from a theologian. He says, Paul's stark warning for those who live like this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 21. That's an important, very important warning. Paul is referring to habitual practice rather than infrequent and repented of lapses. For someone continually to indulge the sinful nature without battling against it is to show that the Son has not redeemed them. If I had not battled that anger and animosity within my heart, I mean, I'm putting myself into that category right here of what he's saying. I needed to battle that. I need to be battling those works of the flesh within my own heart. For someone continually to indulge the sinful nature without battling against it is to show that the Son has not redeemed them and the Spirit has not renewed them. Paul is not trying to undermine Christian assurance but to banish complacency, end of quote. Now, here's the key to winning the battle. This is pretty quick, and then I've got a couple quick illustrations here. Number one, which works of the flesh, sinful nature, do you see in your life? That's why it's good to go through inventories like this. What do you see? What's going on? Number two, what are the over-desires that are at root, at the root of these attitudes and actions? So don't just do the morally restrained will. That deals with the symptoms. See, if you, you told me, don't do that out of fear and pride as it related to my rage of anger. That restrains the results. It doesn't get to my messed up heart. What gets to your messed up heart is understanding the over-desire that drives that. This is really critical it's because the over-desires are the basis for most of the bad feelings and all the bad behavior. I say most of the bad feelings because we have the physiological aspects too that contribute. You know, when we have, our chemistry can get whacked out and things like that. Number three, how will you preach the gospel of grace and acceptance to yourself to undermine these over-desires? That's what you've got to do. You've got to preach the gospel and grace to your heart. We must worship Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit, adoring him until our hearts find him more beautiful than the object or the over-desires we feel we can't live without. See, holiness is being so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. It's being so happy at seeing that he's more magnificent, more glorious than anything, that sin loses its appeal in my life. There's a guy by the name of George Mueller. How many are familiar with this guy, George Mueller? a Christian evangelist and director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England, back in the 1800s. He cared for well over 10,000 orphans in his life. Listen to what he said in his biography. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. 
See, that's, that's walking in the spirit. That's the spirit-filled life. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. And how did he do that? He did it through the word of God by meditating on God's word. A guy by the name of Thomas Chalmers, Scottish mathematician and leader of the Free Church of Scotland in the 1800s, preached a sermon titled The Expulsive Power of a new affection. This is just one little phrase that represents that whole sermon. It's a powerful sermon. You can Google it and find it online and read it. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So how do you get rid of the, the affections for the flesh with a greater affection for Christ and the Spirit? Well, quick story here. You've, many of you have probably heard this story before, but I learned this from my, my first grandson, Braden. When he would come over to our house, the first thing that he would do, he'd go into the, to the room that we had converted into a, a playroom. We kept all of our kids' schools, or all of our kids' toys, uh, and we got them all in there. And so he would, the first thing he'd do, come in there, kind of the foyer, take a right, go right in there, he'd play with the toys. I remember this, we were all sitting in the living room all talking, and he came out with his arms full of cars. That's all he could say, cars. He's a boy, okay? So it's the only word that he could really say, cars. His arms were filled with cars. And I'll never forget this. He did this double take as he came to the foyer and looked out on the coffee table. There was something in the coffee table, and he threw those cars because he looked like he really cherished those cars, but not as much as he cherished whatever was on the coffee table. He threw the cars down on the floor. He ran over the coffee table and said, candies. <laughs> the expulsive power of a new affection. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. So God, we pray that you would reveal to us the over-desires of our hearts that are the basis for most of our bad feelings and all of our bad behavior. And may we overcome those works of the flesh by keeping our hearts so happy in you that sin loses its appeal. May you be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you and as we are most satisfied in you, we know we will be crucified to this world for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.